Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Trust is a binding agent for societies. Unfortunately, the internet was not designed with trust or safety of the user in mind. The original architects of the internet's technology brought with them an innate trust for the information shared by users that can no longer be sustained by the vast amount of internet traffic on the networks. But for internet platforms and online businesses, trust in the online ecosystem is at an all-time low. As digital platforms face intense scrutiny by both government officials and public at large, their business models are being questioned. The ongoing debate around how and when platforms or online businesses are obligated to protect their users from harm is now front and center in the political arena. But because no two companies are the same, every firm that provides online services faces different sets of challenges. Many of these firms have trust and safety experts working behind the scenes to tackle the challenging issues of content moderation, disinformation, and user privacy. This means it is more important than ever to reach a consensus on how to increase trust and safety online through best industry practices. My guest today is Clara Sal. Clara is co-founder of the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, an organization working to establish best practices for the trust and safety online industry. Clara is also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, as well as a fellow at the German Marshall Fund in the United States, where she works on content moderation and foreign influence issues. From 2016 to 2019, Clara was chief technology officer at the Department of Homeland Security as a member of the Countering Foreign Influences Task Force. Clara joins us today to explain what the trust and safety industry does and how her organization is tackling the online ecosystem's most complex problems. Clara, welcome to Explain to Shane. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I was so excited when Tim Lorden told me what you were working on because the combination of trust, and I've been working on trust and the internet, which are, do not go hand in glove. And then, especially now with you know people that are working on safety issues, the safety professionals, Creating an association that works on best practices and your your ability to create a global community in a pretty quick period of time. How long have you guys been in existence? Yeah, so we started working on this in January of 2019. That was when, you know, the ideas really had paper. But I think the community has been wanting something like this to exist for a while. One of our other co-founders, Eric Goldman, who's a law professor at Santa Clara Law, he had been organizing these content moderation at scale conferences, which Tim actually did the DC version of. And so there's there's been a lot of appetite for people wanting something to exist that didn't exist before. And this is one of the most pressing problems of our time. I mean, it's in the headline every other day, every other week now. So give us the basics. What do you guys do and, and how do you do it? Yeah, so I think I can kind of give a little bit of history on trust and safety. So a lot of people think trust and safety is a brand new field, but similar to privacy or cybersecurity, it had been around years before people started using it as a common name or term. And I think we're starting to hear more people in DC and policymakers use this today, but it had been in existence since the early days of eBay. And so early on when eBay was trying to decide How do we ensure that this product purse is not a fraudulent one? How do we ensure that users who buy products are actually authentic? How do we ensure that users who sell products are? They started building trust and safety teams. So if you think about e-commerce days, trust and safety has been around to really protect the safety of users. But it wasn't until even more and more social media networks started to launch that there became thornier issues that 
we're harder to be black and white. It's one thing to say, you know, inauthentic behavior on Prada purses are, <laughs> are one issue. But when it comes to disinformation around elections, or it could be COVID health disinformation, there's more and more real life consequences that come into effect. And we're seeing this with elections all around the world, where there's been issues of different disinformation happening. You've seen this in the use of terrorist groups weaponizing the internet. We're seeing this in, you know, child pornography being spread in all kinds of channels. And so the way that we describe trust and safety professionals are people who determine authentic behavior or content online. And so over the last few years, there's been more and more of these teams that end up being built up within companies. Sometimes they're put under their legal team as an extension of copyright and other kinds of issues when it, when it comes to more content-based platforms. Other times we've seen trust and safety teams fall under operations, right? So early companies sometimes may have teams that deal with customer success and, and spam and fraud. And sometimes it's an extension of that. Sometimes it's an extension of cybersecurity. So there's been a lot of different overlaps. There's been more and more companies today that have an extension of trust and safety professionals with engineering. And so if you're thinking about automated takedown, machine learning, and use of AI for detection of content, you're going to see a little bit more technical makeup of, of these teams. And so that's a little bit of overview. But the way that this got started was that there has never been necessarily a shared community of practice for trust and safety professionals to get together. If you know, I spent a lot of time sitting down with professionals and my co-founder, Adeline, she had spent most of her career working in trust and safety. Our new executive director of the association, she spent, you know, she was one of the earliest employees at Facebook before they really had anyone doing content moderation there. So, you know, there's been a huge set of professionals that have spent the last decade or more really thinking about these issues and there was no place for them to share what's in between. It's very easy for the press or other places to spin things out of proportion, but it's really hard for people to have questions to say, how do I even operationalize this? How do I deal with issues that, you know, it could be like anime porn, you know, where does that fall in our content policy and how do we change it? And how do we do it in a way that's transparent for users? So I will pause there, but that's a little bit of history and why we got started was, was really feeling that, that niche from the community of wanting something like this to exist for a very long time. I love you using the example of eBay because they were definitely one of them that were trying to get it right from the get-go. I mean, when they realized it was an issue and they, you know, they used to actually have people get together and do big eBay conventions, which seems counterintuitive to you know what you think about them being an online platform. But knowing that in Facebook and these people have had to these platforms have had to grow their way into these responsibilities that are now kind of laid at their feet. Do you see more of the startups starting with the idea of having a trust and safety officer as one of the C-suite or somebody in the legal department as a must-have, not something that you kind of add on later? Yeah, I think I think it depends on the company and their structure. The sad part is much like every single issue, we saw this in cybersecurity, right? In the cybersecurity space, most people, it wasn't until the major cyber attacks took place at cybersecurity firms that most people started investing in cybersecurity infrastructure. And now the, the dialogue is that, you know, most companies today they'll invest in cybersecurity regardless of whether there's an attack or not, right? So yep. I think in the same same way, unfortunately, most companies don't really think about trust and safety until something really bad happens. You know, Twitch never knew that they would have 
streamers that were doing live shootings that would use their gaming platform for that, right? So these are all unintentional consequences as communities online grow. There will be different instances. And there's companies today that have trust and safety teams that I think most most of the public wouldn't even think about. Like dating applications, it's actually the most critical when you have a bad actor online that is preying on females or other people. Once you have one bad actor, there's a huge bottom line hit to the company of safety and whether this is a trustworthy place for you to go. And so we're seeing it in the gaming community, right? So I think the online space, there's been more and more people that have demanded better from companies. And so sometimes it's because of that, there's been a lot of startup founders that they've had a really bad trust and safety experience in their first run at it. And so they often, you know, realize the importance of investing upfront to have community practices in place. Even today, we're looking at new kinds of mediums for where there's new trust and safety issues. Audio, for example, with Clubhouse and podcasts and all these different new channels, companies are having to figure out what happens when people are having content that is really vulgar or shouldn't be out there or just isn't great, right? That might be against a community standard in a country or somewhere else. But it's it's been really hard because I think, especially for startups that are a smaller scale, it's been harder for them to have the resources, unlike the bigger players, to constantly monitor content. And then there's also a pushback right now. I usually say people have to remember that there are trade-offs to every decision, right? You can have free speech or you can have the push and pull of privacy, but it's really hard to have both. And this is actually something in, in debate right now in the EU where they have really strict encryption laws and this question of whether child exploitation content should be allowed to be scanned by companies for takedown or whether you know it should just stay up because of encrypt so 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 that's always something that I, I also like to to think about is like it's very hard especially for smaller companies to keep up but i think there are more and more companies that start to see they need someone to think about this because users are demanding it you know users are expecting healthier communities online where there isn't you know trolls or bots or spam of all kinds and they want us to better. And so a lot of, you know, what we've been trying to do is we do have a way for smaller companies and startups to get involved with with us at the Trust and Safety Professional Association. We'll actually sponsor and give them a scholarship through a grant we have through a Midiar network. And so that's something that we're evaluating to make sure that we're constantly thinking of a best practice and practices, not just from the larger guys, but the smaller ones as well. So if somebody is interested in some of your best practices, do they have to become a member to learn about you guys? Or how does how does your process work to, to become part of the community? Yeah. So, you know, I'll be completely honest. I think we're still figuring out. We just onboarded our new executive director, Charlotte Wilner, January this year. And she's really been taking the helm of thinking through all of these questions. The way that we got started was we started off with a set of founding corporate supporters. These are companies that really felt like we should exist, but they don't get any kind of say in how we run things because we're really here to serve at the end of the day, the professionals that often don't have a voice at the table when it comes to the C-suite. I know you had asked that earlier. For years, there's been a lot of trade-offs between someone who's, who's at a company trying to protect the safety of users and people with business interests, you know, it might be the chief revenue officer of a company trying to grow the company as fast as they can. And a lot of companies, their main business model are actually opposite of protecting users, right? They're trying to grow at a speed. They're trying to track user data so that 
they have as much information for advertising and monetization. And so when it comes to how do we make this process safer for users versus how do we make this process harder for users to engage because we want to care about safety, a lot of these teams often get sidelined at the table until something really bad happens. And so constantly, a lot of professionals will always, they want to have a product update. Their feature will be deprioritized off the laundry list of everything else. So we're really trying to make sure that these voices are, these best practices are also done by voices of of people that are operational, that are doing the day-to-day work. And we can really think about better ways of improving the process of how trust and safety is done. So that is all to say, the way that we kicked off was we had these founding corporate supporters that helped give us the capital to to really come together, but they have very limited say in programmatically what we create because we want to really represent the voices of people who don't often have the voice in the room. So we we kicked off around June of last year with around 12 companies. So we have Airbnb, Automatic, which is behind WordPress, Cloudflare, Facebook, Google, which includes YouTube, Match Group, a Midiar network, which is sponsoring the smaller startups, like I said earlier, Pinterest, Postmate, Slack, Twitter, and the Wikimedia Foundation. So we really felt like this was a pretty diverse group of companies. And the way that the founding corporate supporter process works is that everyone who's a professional under each company, they can sign up to be part of the association. So that's that's one way that we wanted to really be able to scale quickly. We are trying to figure out, you know, annual memberships and those that are individual memberships. But, you know, again, it, it's the balance of, you know, a small team and an association how to do things in the most awful way. So we are continuing to, to reevaluate. So right now, under annual supporters, we have a clothing company called Depop that allows you to sell resale goods, Eventbrite, and then Robinhood. So those are those that came on in a later cycle. So if, if folks are involved, unfortunately, right now, they have to do so as an employee of one of these companies. But we're definitely in the process of figuring out individual memberships. And then second, we also have a listserv where and a Slack group where there's been, you know, it's really open to anyone in the community to join and participate. So we're thinking about a number of events that allow for a broader set of stakeholders to come in. You have a really interesting mix of I'm sure people that are just, I mean, first top of line for the C-suite are risk and compliance. But now you brought up the end user expectations. So, you know, if I'm on the platform, I want to, I have certain things I'm expecting them to protect me from or things I don't want to see maybe. But let's talk about what are some of the common misconceptions about how content moderation works and do people underestimate how complex it is? Oh, absolutely. I think the dialogue has changed even the last year alone, (laughs) as most people experience different types of moderation. What's been really fascinating is around COVID disinformation and health misinformation. There's been more unanimous agreement (laughs) among the general population that this is bad content. Even if we're unsure, we should take it down, right? Because public health is on the line. I think specifically around more polarizing issues like politics or elections, there's been a lot of back and forth around the general public on what's good, what's not. But Historically, most people have thought about content moderation as what's been represented in the news, you know, outsourced teams, normally in the Philippines or somewhere else, people working really terrible working conditions, trying to, you know, manually sort through pieces of content. And a lot of these teams today are, you know, using automated software to minimize the amount of harm. But that's just part of the story, right? So 
to kind of paint a, a, a bigger picture, today there are some teams that continue to use outsourced vendors like Cognizant or Accenture. Cognizant exited the business actually around a year and a half ago. But a lot of teams that deal with a lot of volume content, there's no way for them to have the people required to really moderate. And so they will turn to outsourced vendors. And there's been more push and demand for the working conditions of those that are outsourced to be elevated for them to be paid a minimum wage. Casey Newton has done a lot of reporting around this. That's one angle. There's been a lot of teams that have content moderation in-house. So they have people that do community policy. There's people that do operations. We're starting to see even account managers that deal with advertising, having to think about content moderation because they're dealing with advertising content that may, may be put in front of other types of content that advertisers may or may not want. And so, you know, this is interesting. Even a few years ago, YouTube lost a lot of business because a lot of advertisements were put in front of ISIS videos that ISIS was putting up and they wouldn't take down the ISIS content. But once advertisers started pushing back, they ended up deciding to take down some of these videos. So it's been interesting to watch the space evolve. Every company makes a decision on what they think is appropriate. But I think some of the who is behind the scenes doing content moderation, a lot of that has been, you know, a big myth around just only the folks that are outsourced alone. There's just been a lot of professionals that have been involved. Today, they're at certain companies, they have VPs of trust and safety. So there are folks that are now in the executive suite that are thinking about these issues, which was very different a few years ago, where this was not as important. So another common misconception is just, you know, this question around, you know, we should just automate ourselves out of this problem. So this is a common Silicon Valley (laughs) example of let's use technology to, to get ourselves out of it. And so I think a lot of people have questions around how much is being automated. And unfortunately, I don't have a clean answer there. Certain companies choose you know, automated means sometimes because of personnel. They just don't have enough people. Oftentimes, if you're a very large platform, I don't know if you guys remember the, the Christchurch shooting, but First. Facebook normally uses humans in the loop to monitor take, takedown of content. But that video went so viral and people were searching for it too, like normal people, because they wanted to see the content that they ended up using automated detection to almost moderate to quickly take that down before that video could spread. Because once it hits smaller platforms or other channels, it's it's out at that point. There's no way to actually mitigate the spread. So there's been, you know, di- based off of size, there's been different approaches that companies have taken based off of issue. It's not always black and white. I think around like child pornography and terrorist content, a lot of companies they are using hashes of known images in a database. And so sometimes those automated content will be taken down in a much easier way. But oftentimes there's always mistakes. There's been a lot of outbursts over, you know, Instagram and some of their content takedown over like nudity or people who have said, you know, there's been discrimination over pictures of a skinnier women whose like nudity-ish photos get to stay up, but bigger women especially those of color, the content will be asked to be taken down. So there's been a lot of questions around use of automated detection and when it works, when it doesn't, you know, AI often, you know, is by amount of content. And so there's a lot of questions around diversity there, but there's so many angles we can go down. (laughs) But I think that's, that's a big question. I think at the end of the day, companies have realized that there continues to be the need for a human in a loop and for, you know, smart people to think about determining a way forward for the process. 
sometimes companies don't want to make that decision. And so with Facebook, you know, they've created the observation board, which is a set of neutral folks from different sectors that help weigh in on some of the more controversial issues for content takedown. So there's been a lot of different questions around how to do this right. But unfortunately, it, it comes down to resourcing at the end of the day. Smaller companies may not always have the best resources or the right resource that's allocated. And so that's sometimes the voice that we try to give is trying to help other people at companies that are controlling the budget. You know, how can we help elevate the voice of professionals to say this is a really important need for us to invest in trust and safety operations from the start so that we can have more, more smart and diverse people thinking about this problem versus just, you know, one or two people <laughs> that that carry the weight of of all these issues. Well, the challenge of AI is someone has to train it and they have to write the software. And I always say to my, I have lots of colleagues in this space, God love them. But, you know, sometimes AI gives us a view into what we turn a blind eye to. So we don't think we see it. And they're like, well, how's AI picking up on that? You're like, well, someone made a point of putting it in there. But I mean, I've also been in this space for a very, very long time. It's never perfect. When I first joined the company that runs Tom that we also had org and somebody the I think it was the National Park Service had America the beautiful.org and somebody left the leasing on that slip and a porn site was put up instantaneously because that's what the internet people do. And mm-hmm. unfortunately we had a senator's office call and say we had a bunch of Boy Scouts talking to one of the people in our Senate office and they pulled up America the beautiful.org, which is usually about looking at the Blue Ridge Parkway and guess what wasn't there and guess what was. So I think that the fact that you guys exist show a maturity in the entire industry and I realize there's multiple industries I'm talking about when I say that, but the fact that we're acknowledging it and putting so many time, money, resources, people towards it. And I know a lot of groups have done this for a very long time. I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, there's some of that can be automated, but you need humans in the loop. And then we also need to appreciate those that are monitoring and moderating this. It's a really tough job. That is I mean, not not an easy thing. And then, you know, all the stories that we've read that people have done exposés on about it's mentally very taxing to see what humans are willing to do and say and, you know, do to each other because they think that they have the blind eye of the Internet. And no one knows, you know, who they are that's doing it. So I am very hopeful that just your sheer existence means that we are coming into a level of maturity about the use of the Internet, which does yeah. turn us to a topic which is very hot. As I sit here in Washington, D.C., but it's known as, you know, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, but really more about what we believe we should be and should not be saying and doing and who do we make responsible or hold responsible is a better way to say that for what is going on on the Internet. Do you guys address that all at all in your organization? Yeah, I mean, it comes up all the time. We joke that, you know, Section 230 doesn't come up. (laughs) There's something wrong. But I mean, I think it's just been a hot topic. And actually, a lot of trust and safety teams are not as familiar with policy. So they're always questioning what actually has weight, right? When we think about the policy world. And I think Section 230 definitely also has divisions in the trust and safety community. You know, there's been a lot of people that have varied opinions on what side it goes. And I think it's obviously, you know, this very question of the First Amendment and where everything comes in (laughs) around that. And the role and responsibility of of companies all throughout. So we we do try to do a lot of work in educating people at companies on just what's happening around policy and legislation. I think the, the U.S. has taken a backseat on a lot of strong regulation against companies for a long time. And there's been a lot of pressure right now from the EU Digital Services Act. We've seen India even recently 
around COVID numbers, you know, they're trying to play a stronger role in controlling the narrative. And so there's been, you know, human rights issues. There's been a lot of different debates. There's been companies that are, I mean, countries that are more proactive in experimenting with extreme regulation around certain topics. And, and so I think the one thing that I will say is that in a lot of 230 discussions and, and even issues beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of trust and safety professional voices at the table to say, hey, here's policy, but how do we actually operationalize this policy at the company level? So if if something's imposed, you know, in the UK, it was like terrorist content must be taken down within an hour. How would that actually work? How do we make sure that we're not, you know, over censoring content at the same time that companies are scrapping to figure out how to abide by those rules? And so those are those are things that we're hoping we can we can push forward more is getting more voices of professionals to help explain the nuances of how it's done at companies of all sizes and for them to also at the same time learn about what's happening because a lot of trust and safety professionals they're not at the table it's usually the public affairs or government teams that tend to kind of play communicator or deflect questions <laughs> when these are raised and so we do want to value that, you know, there's so many important perspectives that are needed. And I think there's a lot of gaps right now in policymakers and, and their understanding of how operations just work normally, because you can't really change something until you change the structure or you have, you know, enough resourcing to allow things to actually come about. Otherwise, a policy is just a dead policy. At the very beginning, a couple of years ago, when they started doing these five-hour hearings on social media, I was highly entertained and would watch all 11 hours of it. And then it got to a point where it was so frustrating because the lack of understanding of the technology by the people in the government, it just it, it, it seemed inexcusable at a certain point. You were like, mm-hmm. I get it. But it's, it's always been true that ideally, I always tell people we want to legislate an outcome, do not legislate the technology because you're, once you put that in hard language, it's very hard to get it out. Mm-hmm. have background in disinformation and security and, and work that you've done at DHS. Can you, are there lessons that you learned from looking at it from the government side of the lens that you've been able to bring into the, the other side, the social media platforms and, and corporate platforms, you know, after seeing what we, you know, you obviously saw some really interesting stuff when you work at DHS, I imagine. Yeah, I, I think at the, you kind of hit on the nail of the head. I think, you know, in my job, you know, I, I was the chief technology officer of two teams, one focused on election security, another one on use of the internet, and also just homegrown extremism. I think for both issues, I felt like I was just a professional translator. I mean, a lot of times it was like an issue was raised, people are using different languages to explain something. I think at the core, most people, when it comes to these national security issues, they're all trying to problem solve together, but speaking past each other you know, and, and feeling like they're not not understood. And so a lot of lessons learned, I think, is just there are so many communities that touch trust and safety as an issue, but there was a lot of lack of sharing across the aisle, right? So in U.S. government, when you touch an issue like terrorist content, that was completely separate from election security or broader disinformation. And when disinformation became more worked up of an issue, it was really unclear where in the government it would sit, right? Under what jurisdiction. There was no team at in the White House that was specifically looking at content that doesn't hit a particular area. If it's not child pornography, if it's not terrorist content, where does it sit, right? And even with medical disinformation, that was also quite unclear if it belonged to human health services or elsewhere. And a lot of these teams also 
don't have a firm grasp on who to talk to at companies. So, you know, they often had one government affairs contact, but no one really else to, to talk to. And this is not just in the U.S., but internationally. I remember there was one pretty high level official from one country who reached out to me with a spreadsheet of different Twitter names. And it was saying, hey, these are all like spammy or fraud accounts. I can't get in touch with anyone at Company X. Can you send it to them? Because they're not listening to us, right? And so I think you see this challenge from a lot of government officials all around the world. They don't know who to talk to. They're obviously dealing with a lot of secondary consequences of this. And on the flip side, you have people at companies that are not well-staffed, or sometimes they're not reaching into particular countries because they're they're less prioritized. And there's there's a lot of implications for this that I think companies are more recently waking up to. I was at Microsoft in 2014, and one of the projects that I was spearheading was around civic integrity in Myanmar. And I remember I saw the entire episode of a lot of online hate just happening because Facebook at the time had no one that spoke Burmese that can do content moderation. And then you have a mini ethnic genocide that spiraled out of that. You had in-person riots. And then we saw similar behavior in 2016, you know, with just this like bottleneck of frustration, but also like lack of clear moderation process. Even It was even worse in Myanmar because of language barriers where there was absolutely no ability to take down anything. People were pretending to be journalists. And this was a country that had been under dictatorship for years. And so, yeah, the short end of the stick is, I think there is still a lot of work ahead. And I feel like a lot of my, my time in government was really educating kind of this technology literacy gap that I think a lot of stakeholders have. You know, there's a lot of difference in what's actually given to you by recommendation and engines, what's tracked when you're searching for something and, you know, having cookies trail you versus content that's being taken out. You know, and, and I've seen this in congressional hearings all the time where people confound or mix up different issues from data privacy to advertising to the actual user generated content. If you don't separate those issues, it's really hard to problem solve each one. I think that you are, we're very fortunate that you were at the right place at the right time. You have a fantastic background of knowledge in this. And I think that the the work that you're doing, I know it's just starting from the idea of an organizational structure, but I am so thankful you guys are, are working on this. And I hope we can have you back on the show and learn more as you get your best practices in place. And I realize you have a limited group, but you have a pretty amazing limited group right now. And I think eventually letting individuals in there and other companies, it's a wonderful thing you're doing. So I want to thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane, and we look forward to having you back in the near future. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.